0: This is Bloomberg Best.
1: Bloomberg Best is about the insight and the context that we get from our guests.
2: It's a great way to catch up on some of the stories you might have missed on the Bloomberg.
3: Stories you're not going to find in any other news organization. I'm Ed Baxter.
4: And I'm Denise Pellegrini on this special edition of Bloomberg Best from the World Economic Forum
3: in Davos, Switzerland. Bank of America's Brian Moynihan says consumers' economic activity is
5: slowing down. Going from a year-over-year growth rate in the first part of 23 versus 22 of 10% down to year-over-year growth right now, 4.5%, 5%.
3: Blackstone's
4: Steve Schwarzman says financial markets are heating up. The
1: expectation that interest rates are going down is creating animal spirits again.
3: The co-owner of the Boston Celtics says NBA teams could be worth even more.
0: I don't think they peaked at all yet. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world.
4: All right, Ed, let's start with Brian Moynihan.
3: Yeah, CEO of Bank of America, has a front row seat on the U.S. economy.
4: Yeah, he sure does. And our Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz, well, they caught up with Moynihan on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum to ask him about that, and about the Federal Reserve as well.
3: So it's kind of noisy at the WEF there in Davos sometimes, but... Let's listen in.
5: So we got 66 million consumers, and we track every week sort of how they move money in and out of their accounts, so credit card, debit card spending, checks written, cash out of the ATM, Zelle payments and everything. And so over the last 12 months, they've gone from a year-over-year growth rate in the first part of 23 versus 22 of 10% down to year-over-year growth rate now, 4.5%, 5% in December, in the first part of January, pretty consistent since the mid-summer. Now, that's good news and bad news. The good news is it's slowed down because it's more consistent where it was 16, 17, 18, sort of a low inflation, lower growth economy, meaning the drag effect is starting to tame their behavior, which helps fuel inflation. Uh, the bad news is, as they're slowing down, you know, our core prediction by our research team, which is the best in the world, is we go from almost a four and a half, whatever it was in the third quarter growth rate to a 1% positive soft landing, but still a quick slowdown.
6: Mike Apen, who leads that team yeah. on the economic side of things, looking for that early rate cut from the yeah. Federal Reserve in, in, say, March. Based on what you are seeing, do you think
5: that's necessary that the Federal Reserve would need to be doing that as early as March? Well, you've seen the market play out here a pretty good swing on that debate but you know our, t- our core team has four cuts and four cuts 24 and 25 and so if you sort of sort that through people wouldn't interpret that but that is actually higher for longer because you came off of 25 basis points and if you end up at three and a half you know next year eight quarters away from now so I think the team Mike and the team they basically they're saying they're gonna have to start cutting because they have a space to cut and the economy can keep growing and the last thing you want to do is tip this thing over and so the consumer spending good shape their credits in pretty good shape the credit statistics surveys all it's normalizing. It's normalizing at 19 and 18. Those are like 50 year good records in our company. It's, it's not normalizing to uh, stress. It's normalizing them, you know, to the base case. So if you think about that, they've got access to credit. Inflation hurts, especially median income. That's tough on people. That's what you read about. But in the end of the day, they've got to set up so they have to start cutting, lest the drag gets too strong. And the housing market's got to get a little more oomph to it. You've got to get a little, car purchases up. You've got to get these things that kind of keep the economy rolling on.
2: Just on that housing point, how much do rates have to drop before you really see the mortgage market come back?
5: Well, I think there'll be two parts to that equation. If you got it, all, all the people in the consumer say, if you get a six handle consistently, or even, you even know, high fives, low sixes, then people sort of get You just need time, too. And so when, when I got my first mortgage, eight and a half, I thought I had a deal. You know, it's, I, I first went into business and the primary was 23. And so, but I was, everybody's used to that. People aren't used to this. It. So it's going to just take time for them to think about it differently and get used to the pricing's got to, you know, to flatten out and adjust their their wages have to come up um, but the good news is you know most Americans have a fixed rate mortgage which in an inverse sort of is a is an asset right now and to have a against the market and so it's going to be slow in the first part of next year it should start picking up as people get more and more used to this and frankly there's just a turnover in housing because people uh, get divorced get sick you die move to a bigger house uh, those so are very cheerful. pleasant things exactly. but but the, but the reality is that's what happens. The okay. so, so there's always an activity it's just <laughs> <laughs> that the refinance activity is mortgage-driven, but that's, that's done for a while. But the, the purchase activity will pick up because people have kids and want houses and things like that.
2: I'm curious, you know, in your, in your earnings call, you expressed some cautiousness yeah. around your outlook.
5: Yeah.
2: Other CEOs of certain financial firms have been less so, particularly yeah. at this Davos meeting. Talk about hiring, talking about the yeah. incredible boom in M&A, IPOs, everything yeah. coming back. How do you explain the difference?
5: Well, we're cautious because the economy is slowing down, and that's just how you have to manage expenses. You know, we, we have a big enterprise. We, over the course of last year, probably went down four or 5,000 headcount. We still hired 15,000 people last year. So we are always hiring. People hire 1,000 to 1,500 people a month, and with a turnover rate, which has actually gone down to 6% now, probably the lowest we've ever had in reasonably normal times in the company's history that we can find, you don't have to hire as many as you did in the Great Resignation. So we, we look three years out for headcount. We plan into it. but it's how you keep the expenses, at the end of the day, our expense base $63 billion, 35, $38, 40000000000 is people. It's, it's all about managing people and then using AI and technology and applied technologies to take work away and migrate people to other places we need to work. And so are we hiring commercial bankers? Absolutely. Financial advisors? Absolutely. Uh, middle market investment bankers? We'll probably double that staff for the next couple of years. Are we hiring salespeople in the branches? Yes, but at the same time, the service side of that keeps going more digitized and automated, even deep in, we had a billion two digital interactions in consumer last quarter. Just think about that. And you still have a lot that isn't. So you can, you're always getting a benefit of that. So it's a, it's a balance. Core economy, we think is solid. Most people think I'm optimistic. I'm just giving you the facts of whether our talent team tells us, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to manage expenses because it's NI flattens out and then starts growing. Net-institute income, that's 60% of a revenue, so you've got to make sure the expenses are in line with it. Three end 3
6: Endgame. Yeah. It sounds like a bad movie. Let's talk about it. Given what's proposed. Do you think it will go through as proposed? And let's start with what's proposed. What are the conversations, what do they sound like between you and regulators at the moment? I think
5: there's an openness. You don't have to really take what I say. Just listen to the people who are going to actually have the vote. The people actually have to propose, uh, approve it and the difference of opinion, which, which is a bit unusual, honestly. I've been doing this stuff around 40 years, and I've never seen the, the, the board itself have uh, out in the open divergence of opinion, and that's because what it affects is so... Penetrative across the society, small business lending, you know, mortgages, tax credit, equity deals, trading things. So, a lot of what you heard after the financial crisis really had about ten or twelve of us that, you know, were making adjustments. That and you know, then another group came behind. This goes deep in the thing. That's what you hear more noise. And of course, they're going to their Congress team, uh, people. They're going to the regulators and saying, "Wait a second, is this what you want to do?" And so, I think that means there's going to be debate around changing and probably change. But we'll see it play out. And even, you know, even uh, the Fed. Has said that. Do they have to change it? Yes, because I don't think it's the right balance, and that's why the comment letters flooded in all over the place. And you know, we've made the points clear, 20% increase our capital doesn't seem to make sense given where we are. Now, we have $195 billion of regulatory capital. After you do this calculation, we need $195 billion of regular capital. All sounds easy, except for the $30 billion that was excess right now, you ought to be able to go out and make loans or do something. That's like five or $600 billion of lending capacity to just got taken away overnight. If this goes through, it. We we're not sure that's the right judgment
6: right now. There is this story that's going around at the moment, and I'd love your perspective on it. On the asset management side of things, they talk about debanking. They talk about a lot of this activity shifting to private credit markets. Can you give me your perspective? How do you think that would really work out in practice?
5: So if you take a long arc, it's done. It, what we're talking about now is a sort of private lending at the edge, which is sort of upper middle market leverage lending and things. But if you think about the mortgage market, you think about the, oh, the home equity market is still the banks because of difficulty revolvers. The credit card market is not is with the big banks, but it's actually we took it through a non bank capacity, us for the MBNA, for example, and brought it back. Um, so we own it, but it's, it was built in a different context when it took off. Uh, you go to uh, anything but core uh, small business lending, core middle market lending, auto lending, it's, uh, almost every class is half outside the banking system today. That is not the worst thing because that means capital gets leveraged different ways and the market speaks and drives it and that's what Europe doesn't have is that kind of deep capital markets allow them to get the capacity. It's good for fees and investment banking, capital markets. It's not a great thing when a company is under stress. And that's what the, the question of a $300 million company in a, in a private loan fund where you don't have a workout attitude, you have a trading attitude towards it, which is not right or wrong, it's just a different attitude. That, that'll be an interesting question of how that reverberates in the economy, but that's, it's, it's largely out there, and we're talking at the margin about these private loan funds, which is really a very narrow category.
2: Are you thinking about getting into private credit?
5: We are. I mean, we have $500 billion of commercial loans, a trillion dollars of commitments. It's, they're all private credit loans. We don't do highly leveraged transactions. We, it just it, It's hard well, for us to do. can you
2: compete with the Apollos of the world? That's what
5: I think. Mean. I think we, we competed with them yesterday I think we and tomorrow, so I think we'll be fine.
2: Going forward, though, is this going to be a part of your revenue, especially as you are concerned about some of the risks right. that are building? Because you said yeah. you seem to the hint that there's some risk building that's just sort of out of the purview of yeah. regulators if it's just shifting elsewhere.
5: And, and so, the FSOC was conceptualized to deal with this, right? And you can't, it, it, it really, it's hard for it to really deal with it, because it's in what you know, think of net asset value funds, i.e. the asset value is not dependent on dollar deposit. So it's a little bit like, okay, a bunch of people lost some money. So if you look at what happened in the financial crisis for leveraged funds and apply that to a bank balance sheet like ours, we'd have lost a half a trillion dollars, to give you a sense. Yeah, it, it was a wipeout. It just got spread through the system. So that's why it's not an entirely bad thing to have that that, uh, that uh, shock absorber. It goes in all our 401Ks and all our you know pension funds and all that stuff. Not good, but it just spread so widely people don't feel it. It's not dollar-dependent lock that I got to give a dollar back to the, to the depositors. So there's some good things about this. Final question. If you are a
6: successful banker on Wall Street, you get asked this question. In five years time, will it be Secretary Moynihan, is that how this is going to work out?
5: <laughs> I, I, I've got a big job, and I have a fun job, more importantly, and uh, I got a lot of years ahead. It doesn't of, sound like fun down in Washington. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, but it, you know, I think I do what I do. I love doing it. We have a great company, and it's fun to do. But you know, at the end of the day, we need good people serving Washington. It may not be me, but we need good people to serve. There.
4: And that was Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America, on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos with Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrell and subwoords. And coming up, Blackstone Steve Schwarzman on Animal Spirits and the Federal Reserve.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Best.
0: This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And
4: I'm Denise Pellegrini with this special edition of Bloomberg Best featuring some standout voices from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland.
3: Now, of course, the Fed got a lot of attention there in Switzerland. Yeah,
4: it sure did. And Bill Winters of Standard Chartered, well, he says the rate cuts from the
7: Fed are coming eventually. The market might be a little bit ahead of itself in terms of of rate cuts this year. Uh, I, I, I have no doubt. That we'll get to rate cuts at some point.
3: And Walsh of Guggenheim seems to agree with Winters.
7: We still see rate cuts, and we are actually
4: predicting that they start sooner rather than later. Well, Ken Rogoff of Harvard, well, he has the opposite
7: view from Walsh. The six rate cuts, that's a pipe dream if we have a soft landing. That's not happening.
3: And Gita Kopanath of the IMF also on the skeptical side.
8: I think markets are being a little exuberant, expecting as many rate
4: cuts as they've put in. And then we have this from Cantor Fitzgerald's Howard Lutnick.
0: The market is now calling for a 175 basis point cut by the Fed. Really? How about this? No way. No way at
3: all. Okay, Lutnick definitely sounded uh, the most exuberant there about the risk of being over-exuberant.
4: Yeah, he did. A Blackstone's chairman and CEO, Steve Schwarzman. Well, for his part, he's quite confident, Ed, that the Federal Reserve will lower interest rates.
3: So here he is with our Francine Lacroix on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland.
1: Well, I think 2024 will be a good year. It'll be start out slower uh, in the sense that, you know, interest rates are still pretty high and the Fed will keep them that way everybody has their own guess, you know, probably till the second half, uh, at some point in there. Uh, so, so that'll, that'll sort of have a little bit of, um, sort of a baffling effect. Um, stock market had such a run, uh, in, in in the fourth (laughs) quarter, uh, that, that you wouldn't expect that to, to really take off and go. And the economy is, uh, a slowing uh, a bit uh, that's normal with high interest rates so so the, on the other side of the ledger the expectation that interest rates are going down is is creating animal spirits again uh, and we we did at Blackstone we did six uh, private equity investments in six weeks at the end of the year after a slow year, we're much busier now. Yeah. Uh, in a way, it represents some type of capitulation for okay. people who are holding back uh, for two years. Uh, so uh, we're 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 optimistic. Yeah. For, for this year,
2: but uh, Steve, are you are you worried that if actually we don't get those cuts promised by the Fed, because a lot of the good news is already priced in markets, that people w- will start waning on the deals a little bit? So for the moment, you're optimistic. Is second half of the year a little bit trickier?
1: Uh, w- we will get the cuts okay. uh, because the way we measure uh, inflation, Blackstone, we're already right around the two percent. The fact that the Fed's using different numbers you know, for rents and real estate, we think they're they're sort of looking at 6% inflation in rents and and residential real estate, and we're the largest owner of residential real estate. We think it's zero to one. Let's bet on us uh, on this one because we're the people actually doing it. Uh, And if you correct the index for that, difference between what's really going on and they're saying it's 6.2 you you get you get around 2% so I think it's I'm quite confident that they'll be lowering rates some people are like overly enthusiastic about when they do it Uh, we don't really care when they do it it's just the fact that we're gonna go from a period of rising rates to a period of lowering rates.
6: So,
2: so where do you see the best deals? Where do you think that the market is really ripe and, and kind of ready to go?
1: Well, um, there are different, different things. Uh, you know, uh, data centers now uh, are, are really uh, interesting. Uh, energy transition, uh, you know, um, is, that's more of a book value kind of thing, because you're building things typically. Uh, and, AND WE'VE DONE EXTREMELY WELL uh, in, IN THAT AREA. Um, uh, we, WE HAVE healthcare CARE TYPES OF THINGS WHERE YOU'RE INVENTING uh, uh, DRUGS THROUGH tra- uh, STAGE THREE TRIALS. THAT'S UNCORRELATED. Um, WE'RE LOOKING AT VERY INTERESTING THINGS IN EUROPEAN REAL ESTATE. NOW, that, THAT'S COUNTER. I WAS GOING TO gonna what SAY, people COUNTERINTUITIVE. Would, RIGHT, COUNTERINTUITIVE. So there's always an actual reason why it's interesting, not an assertion. So so the reason uh, is that people who own real estate in uh, Europe used to be paying almost nothing uh, in interest because rates were negative for governments uh, and even deposits. And, And now it's costing them about 500 basis points more to carry their positions. If you are highly leveraged, uh, then you're having a, a lot of difficulty holding yeah. your, your positions and, and the actual underlying real estate isn't necessarily growing that much. Right. So the way out of this dilemma is to sell assets yeah. and there's hardly anybody in Europe who wants to buy them. Yeah. But at Blackstone, we're the largest owner of commercial real estate. Uh, we've got plenty of money. We want to buy That real estate, but only the good kinds of real estate, like like uh, uh, the data centers, uh, the warehouses, the student housing, which is all doing well. So what we normally do is tell them to go back and just bring us that stuff, and we'll buy all of it to give them liquidity, and we're we're finding that. That's happening a lot mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's creating things because we only buy them at a price we think makes sense. So, so we now have not only willing sellers, oh. but sellers who have to sell and, and a very willing buyer. So we're going to create a lot of very interesting investments. So what you find, uh, Francine, in almost every environment, if all you're doing is what everybody does, it's not so interesting if you have different inputs, you, you can create things with very good rates of return.
2: How, how do you look at AI? So is AI something that's embedded in the future of, of what you're buying, or do, do you go straight for, the, for AI well, play?
1: There, there are certain types of things. When you look at them, you, you have to, as part of an analysis, say if AI was more developed, is that good or bad for this mm-hmm. type of business? So, so, there are certain types of businesses really not good for. Certain types can really be improved, uh, and, and so that's now on the checklist, if you will, uh, for due diligence. Uh, and we've marshaled almost all of our portfolio companies. Uh, I, I gave, a, I did a Zoom uh, with all of them, all the CEOs, and I told them AI is no longer an elective course. This is core curriculum and and you're gonna learn to love it. (laughs) One of the things that we really wanna do is make sure that every company has has a plan because if you don't and somebody else does, this is an area where if you're not the first mover and your competitor implements AI and they have bigger margins or or more new products, then you're gonna start losing your market share and some people, some businesses who aren't in the game no. are going to be really adversely infected. And I explained to them, that
4: can't be you. And you've been listening to Steve Schwarzman, chairman and CEO at Blackstone, with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos. Coming up, Celtics part owner Steve Paliuca on streaming rights, AI, and the business of sports.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 99.1, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM 121, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter.
4: And I'm Denise Pellegrini, with this special edition of Bloomberg Best, featuring some standout voices from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland.
3: You know how adding ChatGPT to Bing, Denise, was supposed to be an iPhone moment for Microsoft and partner OpenAI and help chip away at Google's dominance in search?
4: Yeah, well, that hasn't happened.
3: Microsoft's search engine ended 2023 with just 3.4% 3.4% of the global search market, according to StatCounter. And
4: on the other hand, Ed, Microsoft did recently surpass iPhone maker Apple as the uh, world's most valuable
3: company. So Sacha Nadella, chairman and CEO of Microsoft, telling us the, the big breakthrough driving Microsoft's success is with user interface, and it should not be underestimated.
8: In fact, 70 years of computing history has always been about can you build that most intuitive user experience? That's kind of hot led to graphical interfaces or the, uh, you know, the multi-touch phone or what have you. But now with natural language, you ultimately, in some sense, have arrived at that point where it's not about us understanding computers, but computers understanding us. Uh, so that's one major breakthrough. The other breakthrough is we now have a new reasoning engine, uh, which is a neural reasoning engine, because the other 70-year history of computing was we digitize people, places, and things and try to make sense of it, reason about it. And so we now have a new capability. So you put these two things together, a new user interface that's much more intuitive, grounded in natural language, multi-modal, multi-turn, multi-domain, and a reasoning engine. Pretty much every software category. What is productivity? What is an operating system? What's a browser? They all, in some sense, collapse. Uh, and so that's why to ask Copilot, uh, just as maybe in the past we were known as an office company or a Windows company or a, a cloud company, I think going forward we will be. We have a Copilot. We have a Copilot stack in Azure, which is all the APIs. Uh, and that's sort of what our co-focus is.
4: Satya Nadella with us there in conversation at Bloomberg House at Davos.
3: And, of course, tech is scoring big in the business of sports as well. And some of that's tied to the whole stream media rights conversation.
4: And Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow and, and Lisa Bramowitz. well, they caught up with Steve Paliuka, managing general partner and co-owner of the Boston Celtics on the sidelines of the WEF in Davos and asked him about it.
3: And Denise Paliuka says, watch for it to build from here and boost sports franchises value starting in the NBA.
7: You know, I don't think they've they peaked at all yet. Uh, basketball is a global sport. I invested in soccer. It's a global sport. Um, with streaming, uh, we haven't really penetrated all the markets. Uh, media rights are still going up. Um, and so uh, the programming, it's the only program I think the top 10 of the 10 uh, rated shows in the US were sports program.
6: Let's talk about that. NFL is absolutely crushing it. Let's build on the NBA. It feels like in the minds of some, so let me give you that perspective, that we're hitting this ceiling, that the broadcasters never really truly own the asset, they rent it they're finding that it's getting really expensive and they're trying to work out where on earth to put it. Do you land it on Peacock, on a streaming device? Do you get it to as many homes as you possibly can through cable, cables dying, what do we do? What do you see further down the road that suggests to you that media rights, TV rights for sports like basketball can keep climbing?
7: Well, we're in a period now, as you guys have followed media, been media investing the last 30 years you've had bundling unbundling rebundling unbundling Uh, we're in a we were in a big unbundling phase you know streaming coming in with cable with uh, linear TV and what what that means is the, the new internet players you know Google Facebook uh, they all want programming for people to watch content. So content is more and more valuable. NBA content is hugely valuable, and so they're fighting over that. I think you'll see some consolidation. You'll see these streamers consolidating, you know, back to the back to the bundling because it's inefficient to have multiple software systems, you know, multiple marketing. Uh, so you'll see a rebundling. But the programming will always be valuable because it's the only thing that really aggregates eyeballs. And so I don't think we're through with those rates going up for premier sports like NBA and NFL.
2: Are buying sports teams better than buying regular companies?
7: If you win, there, it's better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wonder—is it a better investment? It's really bad when it's you lose. The, okay, when when but you it's see it a, a better sign, investment.
2: You fire the owner. <laughs> <laughs>
7: well,
2: I'm going to ask this because you know the entire Middle East delegation here is trying to buy the whole host of different uh, football clubs in Europe. You see this as sort of the hot investment. At what point is it too hot to handle? And this is sort of what happened in certain spheres of private equity during some of the boom times that turned into bust times.
7: Well. It turned out that you know, we, we didn't uh, buy the Celtics. Uh, we didn't have a presentation of, of, of uh, 70% IRR. It was like banner 17. We did it as a labor of love. So I, I have to say, I, I, I certainly didn't predict the values of what, what happened, has happened in sports. But it turns out that sports has been a very good business because of this dynamic of people battling for eyeballs. And, uh, and then secondly, it is a fun investment. You know People are like to be part of tribes. And, and, and sports are, sports is, is, is a great feeling, you know, even some people like AC Milan. You know, first uh, <laughs> it's, it's,
2: it's, it's also a great feeling, yeah, unless yeah, they get, yeah, you know, it's, hammered it's, it's, by it's your It's a great team. feeling
7: to be part of this club. And, and <laughs> when, we, when we bought the team in, in 2003, they barely had contact with any of their customers. I don't think they even had the emails. And there was no, there was no uh, Facebook, there, there, there was no, no Twitter, now X. Uh, so what's happened is, technology has allowed the fans to get right up close, the players to to really really be part of the club be more engaged and then now you have gambling coming in betting coming in which makes them further engaged so it's, it's, it's almost it's out of body experience when you walk into the Boston Garden and, you, and you, feel, you feel that vibe and you feel it on television and technology is making it easier. It seems
2: like you're having so much fun and you're having fun with the tribe of sports, but you're also having uh, fun with the tribe of artificial intelligence, which is basically uh, permeating every corner of this uh, get together. And I'm wondering, you've invested in companies for many, many years. What proportion of some of these AI companies and initiatives do you think are actually going to come to fruition and be valuable?
7: That's a great question, Lisa. Uh, it reminds me of 1999. There were, were, I, was, I was going out to California and people would come in with a term sheet and said, OK, you have two hours to invest in this company that's going to sell medical products on the Internet. Is there a plan? No, it's the Internet. <laughs> And valuation is $100 million, we have no sales. So I, I turned many of those those down. Uh, there are now a 1,000 artificial intelligence companies. If you walk around Davos here, I think they should change, change it to the artificial intelligence forum this year. <laughs> Everything seems to be uh, you know ubiquitous artificial intelligence. That being said, I think we are in the experimentation phase. The CEOs have not implemented this in a big way yet uh... the technology sells a ways to come but i think it'll be just as revolutionary as the internet was uh... right now i don't think people realize a model like chat gpt because it, it it basically is a brute force transformer model it cost four hundred million dollars just in gpu to program it to, to make the large language model so liquid ai a company we've invested into the thesis from mit is they can they can configure the software more like the brain So they have 900, uh, let's say, nodes versus 100,000 nodes in ChatGPT. So you can program a large language model for probably a 20th, 15th, or 20th of the cost. So you're gonna need that cost to come down because if you think about all these models, if everybody built one of those models, you you take up half the power in the United States. So I think we're still in in the experimentation stage and CEOs are saying, uh, thoughtful CEOs are looking at this and saying, where can I put it in my business? How can I make it secure? if you build your own language, large language model with today's technology, it's, it's three, four 400000000 million, so that's not gonna happen. So new technologies are gonna have to come out to make it cheaper, more efficient, and more secure.
6: When did you begin to become, become interested in all of
7: this, Steve? Uh, 30 years ago, I, I started a technology fund at Bain Capital called Information Partners. And in fact, I, I, wrote, a, I wrote a presentation uh, for a conference in Aspen, what, what, it, it's very, it looks like caveman now, but it was called Convergence. Yeah. And I was saying that what's gonna happen is the telephone and the television and computers were going to converge, so we'd have a different experience. Now, little did I know that Apple would come out with the iPhone and all the rest of it. But, but, uh, but I've been interested in, in tech uh, and been a tech investor and consultant for for many, many years, uh, and and been through the internet boom, the craziness of you know. I was literally, I'm standing in California in 1990. These term sheets are coming in. Not bet and This is crazy. And now that's happening again on, on AI, but AI is going to have a huge impact productivity it's going to be great for the United States because I think it's going to be the next pro- t- productivity wave and I'm not one of those that is scared of it, uh, it, it to me it is a supersized slide rule you know when, 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 uh, when I was uh, Methusa at accounting studying accounting, I used to use a slide rule and you know look at a table. And they said, oh, the, the computer's coming in, 12, HP 12C, it's going to ruin our minds. It doesn't. It's a tool that's going to expand our capabilities, and, and, and AI is incredible. And
4: that was Steve Pagliuca, Managing General Partner and Co-Owner of the Boston Celtics, with Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos. And coming up... We'll talk Bitcoin and the new ETFs with Grayscale's Michael Sonnenschein.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Best.
0: This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter.
4: And I'm Denise Pellegrini with this special edition of Bloomberg Best featuring voices from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland.
3: A lot of excitement about Bitcoin.
4: Yeah, especially with BlackRock's Bitcoin exchange-traded fund hitting a record billion dollars. in investor flows this past week.
3: Right, Denise, and Alicia Haas, CEO of Coinbase, among those eyeing the early success of some of the new ETFs, directly holding the cryptocurrency since they started trading this year.
2: This really brings Bitcoin into a much broader investable asset class for trillions of dollars of assets.
4: And that was Alicia Haas from the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos. As she says, she is also seeing signs Bitcoin is stabilizing as an asset. And Ed Raleigh-Pertohova, co-founder of 7RCC Global Well, she says watch for inflows into these Bitcoin ETFs to explode from here. I think the estimates are about $40 billion in inflows uh, over the next one year.
3: And Pertohova also tells us the inflows will likely help take the edge off of Bitcoin's volatility.
4: And then we heard Ed from David Ripley, he's CEO of Kraken. And he says Bitcoin ETFs are good for his business and also kind of free advertising when you think about it for investing in crypto. It's
1: yet another access point. It's an easier path for some to get into cryptocurrency, to you know get their first exposure to Bitcoin. That's going to grow the overall ecosystem. Exposure and uh, awareness is going to grow.
4: And these things grow the overall industry in total. And Ripley speaking there on Bloomberg Crypto.
3: So Denise, Grayscale's Bitcoin trust is front and center for these new Bitcoin ETFs.
4: Yeah, it sure is. And Bloomberg's Guy Johnson and Alex Steele caught up with Michael Sonnenschein, CEO of Grayscale, on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos. Check this out.
9: You know, I think when we look at how GBTC came to market, it was a really differentiated approach. It came to market with $28 billion of assets under management, really tight trading spreads, a very diversified base of investors and 10 years of, of, you know, operating history. Um, And so I think with a fund of this size, you know, it's the second largest commodity ETF in the world. Um, You know, we're certainly not surprised to see some of the flows in the product over the first couple of days.
6: Look, one of the things people are pointing to with you guys is, you still got
9: relatively high fees, some of your new competitors don't, how are you going to square that circle? I think it comes down to investors having choice. The reception we've heard from the investment community is really one of really thanking Grayscale, thanking GBTC for forging a path for these other products to come mm-hmm. to market. GBTC you know, paved the way through our SEC lawsuit, our SEC victory, and ultimately really over the last 10 years developing the disclosures and the operations and the mechanics that now other asset managers and other issuers get to borrow from. Now, that being said, we're meeting investors where, you know, they're trying to invest. And I Mm -hmm. think that from a market perspective, GBTC's fee really does differentiate itself by those factors, the size, the liquidity, the track record.
6: Is it worth 100 basis points?
9: We certainly think it is. I think for an asset class like crypto, a lot of people are pointing to the fact that some new entrants are coming into the space, some of the world's largest asset managers. But this is their first time dealing in crypto assets, operating crypto investment vehicles. And so as an investor, when you're choosing amongst these products, fee is a consideration, the asset manager, the issuer behind it is a consideration. But so should size, liquidity, and again, that track record.
6: You've also been looking into new covered call funds that you're looking to offer as well. that to keep existing money or is it to draw in new money?
9: Well, one of the big benefits to investors that we're eager to get to now that GBTC is on NYSE is the fact that we're looking forward to having options traded on GBTC. On the OTC market where the fund has been since 2015, there are no listed options. And so for a lot of investors, they're eager to start having options to manage their positions and being able to offer, for instance, a covered call strategy may allow some investors to have passive long GBTC exposure but also earn some additional income. So that is a product we filed for. And I think it really underscores our commitment, yep. not just to GBTC, but to crypto more broadly. We want to surround the ecosystem of GBTC to create an even more robust environment. That's Michael Schonenschein,
3: CEO of Grayscale with Bloomberg's Alex Steele and Guy Johnson from the sidelines of the World Economic Forum.
4: And that is it for this special edition of Bloomberg Fest, featuring some of the many distinguished voices we heard from at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland.
3: I'm Ed Baxter.
4: And I'm Denise Pellegrini.
3: And this is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.